All right, this morning is November 11th. It is 2007. Our message this morning is called Drowning in Sin. There are various forms of baptism in the Bible. And men have done what men do. They have argued over every technicality in the Word, uh, expanded great volumes of theological commentaries based on Greek and Hebrew words and what they mean. And some churches will baptize in a certain form or fashion and another church baptize differently and they are right across the street from each other and are not friends. I cannot for the life of me see how this is a practice that Jesus could endorse. And I want you to know that we baptize a certain way. But it's not because we don't think that Jesus will accept other baptisms. It's simply because we believe that it's the best representation that we know of. In my life, I was baptized in a swimming pool by Matthew Pirro. I was 18 years old, realized I needed to be baptized because I had been born again, and ran straight out to the apartment complex swimming pool and demanded that this nervous 17-year-old kid baptize me. Everybody ran from the water as if God had never seen a bikini, apparently. I have seen people baptized with a literal 7-Eleven Big Gulp cup in a shower because there was no other way to do it. I have known people that were sprinkled, people that were dunked, some that were dunked further under the water than others. I don't think God cares. I want to be honest about that. I've had the opportunity to go to Israel several times now, the last time for nearly a month. There are almost 400 mikvahs. These are baptismal pools right outside of where the temple is today. Most of them are just over waist deep and large enough to submerge somebody in. That seems to suggest to me that people in Jesus' day were going down into water to be baptized. But I've also heard it said that they stood on the banks of the Jordan and dipped hyssop branches into the water and sprinkled people. It all works. And we're going to find out that what counts is a changed heart and a changed life. I do not believe that there is a magic formula that must be done or it's invalid. I think that it has to do with what the Jews call kavana, the intention of your heart. So this morning I want to show you not technical ways to be baptized. We are not going to argue about Greek words and Hebrew words and unsubstantiated rumors about Jewish lifestyles. We're not going to be able to do that. What we are going to do is talk about very clearly in the Word what the Bible describes is the motivator and the reason for being baptized. So I told you before we started to start in 2 Peter 3, and you're going to find something very interesting. By the way, while you were there, I want to tell you that Hebrews 6.2 says that we're not going to lay a foundation again of elementary teachings, discussing, and then he lists several subjects, and baptisms appears plural. There are many kinds of baptisms in the Bible. There's a baptism in the Holy Spirit that is talked about throughout the Bible. We're going to teach on that very soon. There's a baptism in water that we're going to teach on this morning. There's a baptism into the body of Christ. There's a baptism coming on the whole earth in fire. That's one you'd like to avoid. Are you all in 2 Peter 3? In 2 Peter 3, starting around, uh, why don't we just start in verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Suffice it to say that people don't always naturally think rightly. (laughs) Not even people in the church who knew and walked with the Apostle Peter. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets and the command given by the Lord and Savior through your Apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed, out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, these present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter goes on to say 
that this baptism of fire that is coming upon the earth, God is waiting patiently so that people will get saved. And he says, make every effort, because God's patience gives people the opportunity to change. And then he describes what kind of life we should live. But he said that the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's a very strange statement, especially to us. We're in the West. We're very familiar with geography. We're very familiar with geology. At least Lindsay is. That's her major. And the earth being formed out of water is a little bit of a strange concept. Peter was not an American. Peter was not a Christian. Peter was a Jewish follower of Jesus, and later people called Jewish followers of Jesus Christians. And what formed Peter's worldview, what taught him about everything that he knew, was the Older Testament in the Bible. And what you find out is that the Bible describes the earth itself as being birthed. In the same way that little Grayson had to pass through water to be born into the world, the earth as we know it came out of water and was born. The earth is described in the Bible as personified, as if it were a human being. And you'll find out that as we look at what the earth goes through in the Bible, you find out what human beings go through. And they're meant to teach us something. The earth is not only born of water. Immediately after the earth comes into its present state of being with people all over it, the earth gets baptized. The Bible calls Noah's flood a baptism, and I will show you that this morning. More than that, after being born and then cleansed with water, it's awaiting a final judgment. In fact, Romans 8.21 teaches us, you can write it down, but don't turn there, we'll go to it later. Romans 8.21 says that the earth itself is longing to be liberated from its bondage to decay, and it waits for the sons of God to be revealed so that it will be liberated. The earth is spoken of just like a person. But before we go to Genesis and look at that, turn to the left in your Bible just a couple pages. I want to read you one more thing from Peter. It'll be 1 Peter 3, and we'll start in the 18th verse. Just a couple New Testament ideas, and then I'll show you where they came from and how it relates to your life. In the third chapter, in the 18th verse, Reading from 1 Peter, we start with these words. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went to preach to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but of the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Quickly, if you have an NIV Bible, you might see a footnote there. And next to the word pledge, you'll find the word response. God is looking for something. There are men and women in this church that have heard the good news of Jesus and they are responding to it. Your footnote says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the response of a good conscience towards God. As we go forward today, I want to encourage you not to get wrapped up in how we baptize. I want to encourage you not to get wrapped up in the form or fashion of it. What God is looking for is the response of someone's conscience towards His gospel. In other words, you might get baptized in a ditch and God honor it. You might be baptized in the cathedral and God honor it. You might be baptized in a horse trough and God honor it. Because what he is looking for is not the former fashion that you were baptized in. He's looking for the response that comes out of your conscience. There are only two people that can actually identify the response of your conscience perfectly. One is God and the other is you. The rest of us have only one thing to do. We look and watch your lifestyle to see whether your actions demonstrate the sincerity of what you say your conscience holds dear. The response of a good conscience towards God should be accompanied by action. 
when I was first approached about doing baptism here, it was by my niece, Rebecca. She's only 10 years old. The response of her conscience was, I'm a Christian. I need to be baptized. I was concerned at first because I wanted to make sure that my niece didn't think that this was some magical ceremony that needed to occur. I'm convinced after talking to her, she simply believes that God's Word says to do it, and so she wants to do it. Is there anything wrong with that thing? Not at all. Not at all. As John and Beth and Ashley all began to talk to me and Joy about baptism, what I see in their life is that something has changed in them. Their consciences are responding to God, and the very first response is, we want our lives to show outwardly to everyone that we are trying to be obedient to God. Now, I was baptized because I had a response in my conscience in the same way. And I ran right out immediately without delay, didn't call anybody, didn't do anything, to jump straight in the pool. Because, well, let's face it, I'm, spontaneous would be the nice word for it. And I didn't want to wait. The Bible teaches, though, a public baptism And it's best if your friends and family have been invited because you want those closest to you to see this change and where it started. This did not save me. Are we clear about that? It did not mean that Eric never sinned again. In fact, you should have been with me in the last three days. (laughs) It didn't even mean that Eric was mostly saved. What it meant was that there was a starting place in time, a place in history where everybody that knows me could point to a date and say, on that date, this man stood up and made a proclamation to the world. From this day forward, my conscience is being moved by God. And I'm doing this to show all of you that I'm identifying with something. The reason that I don't like to baptize very, very young children is it's difficult for them to make that kind of statement. I have seen it very young, but it is difficult. More often than not, what happens is as they get older, as an adult, they want to do this again, and there is nothing wrong with that. How many of you have ever needed a second start in life? All right, how about a third or fourth? I'm somewhere in the thousands, and you might need to put a little times ten to the so many powers. I'm very good at fouling up the new starts that God has given me. But I found out that He will not give up on you if you are just trying. Out of this ark in this situation, a remnant was saved. One of the things that you're going to see as we go through the Word is that there is always a remnant whose conscience responds to God. In every generation, this has to do with being born, being baptized, facing judgment, and a remnant being saved. You'll see those same consistent threads. There's something that David's going to get a chance to write on the board here. See, that's my answer to not being able to spell publicly. He's going to write response of a good conscience, or pledge, if you prefer. Pledge of a good conscience. That's what today's message is about. So turn with me to Genesis 1, and let's note the background from which Peter is speaking. (laughs) Mandy's there. Anybody else there? Genesis 1 will be the first page inside the cover of your Bible and after the bragging of the publishers. Thank you, David. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible makes a unique claim among the world religions. You won't find this claim anywhere else. The Bible makes a claim all the way back in 1600 B.C., when it was first penned on parchment, that there is one God who is above all of the others who has created everything that you see, whether in the heavens or on the earth, and truthfully, even the things that were unseen. That there is one God who is the source of everything. The first religion to ever make that claim was Judaism. Since then, others have sprung up and monopolized that. They have joined in that belief and done something that the Bible says has corrupted it. They've added to it characteristics of God that 
are not accurate. But in the beginning, God created everything that we see. In the second verse, it says, Now the earth was, or your footnote says, was becoming or had become, formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All life begins when something passes through water. Without becoming graphic, all children are born after water breaks and a baby passes through. This is a cycle that even the earth itself went through. Something else that happened to the earth happens to us. Look at the first chapter in the 28th verse. All life on this planet, whether you were born in India, or you were born in Pakistan, or you were born in Louisiana, and you can later rank those and decide which you think is the furthest place on the planet from God. All life on this planet has a purpose. And God said about the very first people that He put here, in the 28th verse, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God wanted a man and a woman on the planet filling the earth with man's presence. We find out later in this book that man was designed to be like God. So with man on the earth filling the earth with man's presence, the idea was the earth would be full of little creatures that are built and act just like God. All life has a purpose. This planet was born with a purpose, and you were born with a purpose. The third chapter, though, something happens, and it happens to all human beings. In the third chapter, God begins to describe to man the very few rules. And the rules are based on this principle. I want you to lean on me. This is God speaking to mankind. I want you to lean on me for what is right and what is wrong. Now, God has gifted all men everywhere with a conscience, period. All human beings anywhere on the planet have a conscience. When we consistently choose that which is wrong, our conscience becomes numb. It becomes what the Bible calls seared. But anywhere you go on the planet, for instance, we have a brand new baby, Gabe's son, Grayson, was born. Anywhere you go, at any time on the planet, Somebody in a crowd of a hundred in any culture, at least one person in a crowd of a hundred, would wince if you kicked that baby right in the face, would they not? There is a universal sense of what is right and what is wrong. Cultures and mankind have worked very hard to numb that, to form it into something that we prefer rather than what God prefers. But there is an innate response in mankind towards what is right and wrong. The problem is it's become corrupted because we choose that which is wrong when it's convenient to us. In the third chapter of Genesis, what you find out is that man has failed to realize God's plan. God wanted man to fill the earth with the presence of God, and man is failing at it. The third chapter also introduces hope, and we'll get more into that hope in a minute, but I want to draw your attention to the fourth chapter. Without us laying a long theological process out for all mankind's sin, I just ask you to look at your own life. When we read about a story of Adam and Eve, and it's foreign to you, and you say, but wait a minute, how could we be held accountable for something that happened thousands of years ago in a garden far, far away? Isn't that a normal response, especially if it's the first time you heard it? You're not. You're not. Not at all. What you're held accountable for is the very first time and many times since that you have chosen to do something that your conscience tells you God does not want you to do. Now, we'll stop preaching and fold this book up if anybody can honestly answer in here today that there has never been a time in your life that you did something that you knew you were not supposed to do. This is universal. We're uncomfortable with the idea of universal sin or the depravity of man, but when you examine it on an individual basis in every human being's life, you will find that there is some moment, and if they're truthful, many successive moments, where you did not live up to God's plan for your life. Genesis 4, starting with the first offspring of mankind, shows us something that we must do with this. 
the earth has been born, human beings are on it with a purpose, not living up to their purpose. And in Genesis 4, we find these words. Start with the second verse. Uh, now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked in the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Yes, friends, we have the very first frown in the Bible right here. I want you to notice something, though. All mankind, no matter where you come from, the Bible makes the claim everybody has a desire to bring something to God. Everybody does. This is why in every culture of the world, people worship something. The idea of an atheist is an illusion and a lie, and it has never existed historically. In any culture that you go into, anywhere in the world, as far back as you can go, mankind has worshipped something. The book of Ecclesiastes says this is because God has put eternity in our hearts. From the time we are born, we are filled with a sense of purpose. There has to be a reason for us to be here. And man has reached out many times to the creation or things around them or other men that they thought lived well and said, in them I'll find my purpose. But all human beings have stretched out to worship God. That is not really the issue, though. That's universal. It's in all mankind. All mankind has failed, and all mankind stretches out for God. The issue comes right here. Cain is angry because the Lord's not accepted something. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. All mankind born with a purpose. Even the world itself born with a purpose. But our desire to do something that is wrong is always there with us. And God said to mankind, you must master it. Now those of you that know how the story of Cain and Abel finishes, how well did Cain do with that? Did he master sin? No, sin mastered him. There are many modern responses to that. The biggest one that we find in our culture working is there's no such thing as sin. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And yet your conscience tells you that is not true. You can say that suffering is universal and that the only response to it is that we should be detached. But how well does that work in your personal life? All of us are touched by other sin. All of us are touched by our own sin. The God of the Bible tells us that we must try to master it. The problem is, as man began trying to master it, he never seemed to get it right. So by the time we get to the sixth chapter, you can turn to the right, and the fifth verse, the Bible says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. That's something that most world religions don't say. Most of the time, we are not honest with ourselves enough to say at the core of every human being is something selfish, something dirty, something very, very self-centered. But it's at the core of every problem. You remember when I asked you to think back into your life, has there ever been a time that you did not do something that you knew God wanted you to do? Why didn't you do it? Because at the core of every human being is a desire to do what we want to do rather than what God wants us to. At the core of every human being, there is something that is just a little self-centered. And that's what needs to be mastered. That's what needs to be brought into submission. But none of us have been able to do it on our own. In fact, from Cain's time to this time, and we're talking about a period that goes from the birth of man to 2,400 years later, so over 2,400 years, the earth becomes so filled with people who only do what they want to do that it grieves God's heart. Look what it says. Sixth verse. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. Heart is a metaphor here. The very center of who God is was filled with pain. He had put mankind on the earth with the purpose of filling the earth with the goodness of God. And instead, man did whatever he wanted to do. 
So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I told you in the beginning that as we began to study about the earth and the fact that it was born, it was baptized, it waits for a judgment, and it longs to be liberated, you also see that there is a remnant of mankind in every situation always that looks at what's going on around them and says, I've been born. I need to change. I feel it in my heart. I know there's a judgment coming, and I want freedom from this bondage. The same thing that's happening to the earth happens to all mankind. Noah is part of this remnant. And look what the Bible says about him in the ninth verse. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was, was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make for yourself an ark of a certain kind of wood. This is one of many stories in the Bible that as you read it and you realize that it actually happened and that it had a natural significance to the people in its day, it also has a much bigger significance to people reading about it later. In this story, what we find out is that the earth has become corrupt and all mankind with it. But God will speak to a righteous remnant, a group of people, a small segment of people on the planet. That's something else that most world religions will not teach you. There are not many, many ways to the one God. There is a righteous remnant on the planet. Now, the worst part about this is everybody claims to be that remnant, and then we fight about it. God speaks to this man on the planet, and he says, hey, I am going to flood baptize, emerge, deluge the entire world and there is only one way to escape this judgment. You're going to make an ark of wood and then you have to get into it. In the 7th chapter and 6th verse it says Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark. Why? To escape the waters of the flood that had come upon the earth. So early in creation, we see that the earth is born, the earth has become corrupt, and the earth needs to be cleansed. And there is only one way to keep from being washed away, to get into something else that God has told you. After this salvation, after their salvation, we start again. It's a brand new beginning. You remember that Peter said only eight people in all were saved? That's because there was Noah, Noah's wife, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. Eight people in all. So what we should have then is a perfect planet, right? Friends, we could flood the planet a thousand times over and save only the best of the best people, but there would still be a problem in every situation. It starts right back at the beginning. At the core of every human being, there is something that is selfish something that is self-centered, something that does not do what God wants. So even though the whole planet was flooded and only eight people survived, sin still remains. The Bible tells this story in Genesis 9, so you can turn to the right. We're going to learn something in Genesis 9. From Genesis 4, we learn that God's desire for us is to master sin. From Genesis 6 and 7, we found out mankind has not done very well with that. In Genesis 9, starting again with only your favorite friends and relatives, only those people you know and you think are good, we find out sin still exists. Have you ever thought that there was a problem in the world, but it was with everyone else? You know? The problem in the world is those people. And what's funny about those people is if you live in certain parts of the South, those people are in the North. And if you live in the north, then those people are in the south. And if you live in another country, then it's those people in the country next to you. And if you all live in the same town, those people are somebody that's a different color or of a different socioeconomic group. It's always a problem with those people. 
The Bible forces you to come to the grips with an issue. If we took away everybody in the world except you and your favorite friends, there's still a problem and it's not with those people. Eight people were saved out of an entire planet. And yet, Genesis 9 says, 18th verse, The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant plant a vineyard. Good. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. There's lots of responses to that. We could refuse to plant wine, to plant grapes and yield wine. Or we could just not drink as much. And if you have a problem where you consistently drink too much, stop drinking. That's what the Bible teaches about this. The very first man who was righteous before the flood, first act after the flood, is planting a vineyard. But if something makes us uncomfortable, let's just change the word. Let's bend it into the image we would like it. We'll all look holy, won't we? A little bit like that guy in the suit in the video. Aren't we so righteous? The problem is not with man's external appearance. The problem is not with what you eat or drink. The problem is at the core of every human being, there's something that is a little self-centered. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his... I'm sorry, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of his wine, too much of his wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside the tent. Don't you love the Bible for its honesty? I mean, think about this for a minute. If you were writing a story to tell how great your God was, would you take one of the heroes and say, he was drunk, dude, and he was so drunk, he got naked. You probably wouldn't do that, would you? I mean, how many of you have told your own testimonies and said things like that? No, I've basically always been a good person. Right. The Bible contains men and women who did righteous things, but none of them were righteous by themselves, and neither was Noah. He's drunk and naked. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. We can argue all day long about what the sin was here, but we know about human beings. In its heart, it was something selfish, something to put man's will above God's. We could say it's gossip because he's going to tell the two brothers, Hey, dude, Dad is drunk and naked. Fun to say, isn't it? Naked. Where I come from, it's naked. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Dave, you're going to be writing here. Use this color. Dave is our new Vanna White. Don't get hung up on the cultural practice here that has to do with the father being naked. The whole point is, after the flood, with just your favorite friends and family, only those people who are good, none of those people, whoever they may be, sin still existed. And so God begins to institute something here. He says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brother. Boy, that sounds harsh. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be a slave. I'm not going to be able to tell you to write this. I'm going to have to do it. What you find out as you look at this is that God says from these three boys, all of mankind will come. And as you learn about the table of nations, which is on the wall behind you, you find out that the nations that came from these boys bear the resemblance of these words that were spoken. But there's an even deeper message there. The deeper message is man comes in three parts. And what we see right here is that the first part of this is Canaan. The second guy that is mentioned as we begin to start this, is Shem. And the last is Japheth. Yeah, that's not spelled right, but you'll love me, right? What the Bible is teaching us is that mankind can be divided into these three parts. God wants us to master sin. And man is not mastering sin, so God lays down a divine order, a way to help us master sin. In the Bible, Canaan represents your flesh. These are your fleshly desires, the things that happen just as a result 
of being a human being. Good, bad, and ugly. Shem in the Bible represents the spirit of a man. This is who you are. When you look in the mirror, there's something behind your eyeballs. That is your spirit. Japheth represents what the Bible calls a soul. Is that right? Soul? O-L? Oh, yeah, there we go. Soul foods. Okay. The soul in a human being is a bridge between these two. It is your mind, will, and emotions. Would you like to hear a demonstration of how you can separate some of these? Have you ever thought, no, 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 that's all silly? I'm in control of me. There's not three parts. I'm in control, right? Anybody know what dysentery is? What's the other word for dysentery? Y'all help me. Diarrhea, that's right. I want you next time that you think your flesh doesn't have a voice and you get diarrhea to say, no, I'm not having diarrhea today. And then you go wear white pants and get in a crowded place. How do you think your day is going to end? Your flesh has a very strong voice. There are cravings in your body that are difficult for you to control. And what God is saying is there's a problem here in mankind and the problem has to do with this order. Man is being led around by his fleshly desires. His spirit is subject to his flesh. In other words, that thing that is who you are inside is listening mostly to the voice of what you want, selfishness. And your soul, which is where your conscience dwells, your mind, will, and emotions, is only involved in this process after the flesh has gotten what it wanted. And this is not going to work. So God turned this order upside down. God said it differently. He said, curse be Canaan. Canaan's going to be the lowest. So we're going to make Canaan, or the flesh, the slave of someone. Who did he say that Canaan would be a slave to? Both of his brothers. Right? Didn't he say that? Am I wrong? Y'all correct me. I rarely lie when I'm preaching, but, you know. Curse be Canaan, the lowest of slave will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Blessed be the God of Shem, your spirit. By the way, the Jewish people, have you ever heard the term anti-Semitic? This is a word that means against Shem. The Jewish people are descendants of Shem. Of Shem. Shemites became the word Semites. That's how we get that. It's the etymology of that word in English. Your spirit is what you are that is eternal. Your flesh is the tent that you live in right now. God said, Blessed be the God of Shem, and may God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be their slave. Japheth, who is your mind, your will, your emotions, lives in connection with your spirit. What happened is all mankind has a selfish core. All mankind wants to do what's wrong. God said, you need to master this. We started over with only eight people, your closest friends and family. But still, even in that situation, we're blowing it. So God says, look, we're going to reorder this. You need to understand who you are. You are a spirit. You possess a mind, will, and emotions. Have you ever thought you couldn't control your emotions? Don't answer me. If you don't, I'll cry and run out. And then how awkward would that be? Right? Have you ever been angry and just think you couldn't be angry? I met a guy who hit his wife one time. And he said, I could not help it. He said, if I had been there, would you have hit her? No. Then you can help it, can't you? Our emotions are not meant to control us. We were meant to control our emotions. They are a God-given gift for us that we have mastery over. Your spirit should control your soul. The last guy in the order should be your flesh. Now, God reorganized mankind in this way. He gave us this divine order. How well did man do from the flood, 2400 B.C., all the way up to the time of Christ? Some, oh, let's see, zero B.C., 2400 years later. There was no zero B.C. There was the first year that he was born, one B.C., but you got me. Not very well. Still wars still corrupt ways, still all of those things. We knew that we needed to master sin. We knew that our spirit needed to be in control of our soul and those two together would control our flesh. But we still couldn't do it. 
And that was a problem, wasn't it? Turn with me to John 3. Y'all excited? We made it to the New Testament? Tell me when y'all are in John 3. Andy's there. Who else is there? In John 3, a religious leader comes to Jesus at night. His name's Nicodemus. Why do you think a religious leader came to Jesus at night? For the same reason you felt awkward during worship at certain points. We are always worried about what other people think. It is difficult for us to escape that. Even when we put bumper stickers on our car that say, I ain't scared, or fear not, or whatever we put, we are still concerned. You don't believe me? Ladies, why do you wear the makeup that you wear? It's solely for your benefit, right? You've never considered how others might view you for wearing makeup. Why did you choose the hairstyle that you chose? We're always concerned with what people think. And to the extent that that dominates us can be a problem. It's not wrong. I'm glad you care what we think. I like that you wear deodorant. I think it's a good thing. I like that you brush your teeth. I'm all for that. If you like me, you'll have less hair to brush in a few years, but, you know, not every head can be perfect like Darren's. He comes at night because he's concerned about what people think, but there's something else that is compelling him. As concerned as he is, at least he came. At least he showed up. Some of you are concerned about how your friends, family, how all of us will react. What if I get baptized? What will they think? What if I really... Oh, Jesus, the way my heart's compelling me. What will my husband think? But you're here. So praise God, you made it. Comes at night. And in the third verse, why don't we just start in the second verse. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. I want to remind you real quick. None of you saw a billboard and came to this church. Not one of you. Do you know how I could know that? This church has no billboards. Not one of you found us in a phone book. Do you know how I know that? We're not in the phone book. Not one of you saw some advertisement and said, Oh, there! What a marketing program! I'm going! There is no marketing program. The only reason you could possibly be here is because you saw God do something in someone else's life. And so now you're here. You said, But some of them are related. That's right. Who should see the things going on in your life besides your family first? It's hard to fit this many people in this room, isn't it? You know the upper room where they all got filled with the Holy Ghost? had 120 people in it. I was standing in it. It was no bit, not then, but a couple years ago. <laughs> older than you think. It's no bigger than this room. People have always been willing to endure small physical hardships for Jesus when they found out how good he is. So what that we meet in the compacted center? That's what I like to call this. If God shows up, what difference does it make? This religious leader comes at night and he says, Hey, dude, you're obviously from God. Really? Then why are you coming at night? Because I know you're from God, but I've got this weakness that I'm struggling with. I'm still a little embarrassed of the things of God. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What do you mean? We've already been born once. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I've got these kind of questions before, and while I appreciate that he was bold enough to ask it, it is a pretty stupid question, isn't it? Who could possibly think that Jesus meant that? But this shows you that he is sincerely struggling with the truth. Why would that be? There's a way that seems right to us. There is. We feel like things should be done a certain way. God is rarely interested in the way you think it ought to be done. In fact, what the Bible teaches is the way that feels most right to you will lead you straight to hell. What the gospel's heart is, is this acceptance of this idea. I was born for a purpose. Something in me has rebelled against that purpose and I want to change. I want a new start. I need to start this whole thing again. How can a man be born again? Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water 
and of the Spirit. Some have said this is baptism. They couldn't be more wrong. All you got to do is read Jesus' next line and it clears it up. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The Bible teaches us that just like the earth started out of water, but then needed to be recycled again, we need to be recycled again. We need a chance in our lives where we can say, Lord, I have not done so well with this, and I want to change. One of the things that baptism symbolizes, and it symbolizes many, and we're going to see, is a new start in life. Turn with me to Acts. You'll be turning to the right in your Bible. Oh, yeah, that brother's fast. We're going to be in the second chapter of Acts. The New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Stand for Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Early Church. This is the history book of the church. If you want to understand, wow, when they heard Jesus' words, how did they interpret it? You don't need to go turn to Matthew Henry's commentary, although I'm happy he wrote it. You can turn to the book of Acts and see how they interpreted Jesus' words. You know the second chapter of Acts? Peter begins to preach his first sermon. And starting in the 38th verse, we find these words. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Repent was a Hebrew concept that meant turn from the way that you were going and pick a new direction. Doesn't that sound like a new start? You're headed to Detroit, where I would like you to go with Los Angeles. Turn around. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. You ever get a telephone call from God? No, me either. Never as my cell phone rang and it was God on the other end. And I would be suspect of it being some weird marketing program if it was. And yet I cannot deny that many times in my life I have met people and something in their eyes beckoned to me. Something in the way that they acted caused my gaze and my thoughts to dwell on them. The very first time I remember this in my life was with my father. He's actually my stepfather. But I knew when he looked at me I did not belong to him. I knew that I was not the son from his body. And yet I could not deny that he loved me. And something about that drew me to him. I was angry. I was only nine years old. Not nearly as smart as these nine and ten and fifteen-year-olds in here. And yet he looked past that anger and he saw something in me of worth that he wanted to develop. And he was not ashamed to call me his son. That was one of the first times in my life I ever remember seeing something in someone else that made me want to change. Another time I was outside of a bar and a man was preaching about Jesus and I was pushed to the point where I was ready to fist fight. And I can't deny that I can still see his eyes not full of fear, full of confidence in the Lord, full of love, staring back at me today. All of us have received a call from God in some form or fashion, and it comes in the people that are around you. Why was man originally put on the earth? To fill the earth with God's presence. You are made to be like Him. And when we act like Him, others see His goodness in us. The problem with the Christian church is it rarely lives up to its calling. With many other words, verse 40, He warned them and He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. No matter how many times God restarted the earth, the earth was full of corruption. What is corruption? Corruption is when you know what is right, but you consistently choose what is wrong. If you want a good example of that, there are certain states with local governments that have been so plagued with corruption, the whole world knows about it. Those who accepted his message were, what? Baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. They accepted a message and then they did something. What did they do? 
They were baptized. Baptism is the response of your conscience to the gospel of Jesus. It is when you want to show the whole world that you are making a new start, as if you were being birthed again. You are changing your life with God's help in that moment. Then they did what? They devoted themselves to something. To the teaching of the apostles. Why would we do that? We know that man's a sinner. And we know that God has said to master it. But how well have you done trying to master it? Not very well. Now today, we know that we are a spirit. That we have a soul and that our flesh should submit to them. But how well do we do with that process that the Bible calls sanctification? Not always that well, huh? The apostles' teaching found in this book are practical ways for us to live out what we say is true by learning in every situation how to make our flesh be subject to our soul and our soul subject to our spirit. To say, I was baptized, but never to have submitted to the apostles' teaching meant that you went through a ridiculous exercise. You simply got wet. Whether sprinkled or whether dunked, makes no difference. doesn't matter if you jumped off a diving board into the baptismal. It would make no difference. This is the pledge of a good conscience in a response towards God. What's a response? And it's very hard. It is an action. Baptism in itself is just the beginning. There must be a devotion to the apostles' teaching. This kind of sanctification is first spoken of graphically in Romans 6. So turn with me to Romans 6 and we will wind this message down. Probably not with that scripture. I often do that. The end is coming. You know when the Bible says the end is near? Yeah, it was 2,000 years ago. So don't get too eager to run out. I don't want to teach you more than you can absorb today, but there are two or three ideas that are too good to leave behind. And I want everybody who's being baptized to know exactly what they're getting into. And if you came not ready to be baptized today, but think that you want to be, there are no requirements. You don't have to have a special white gown. You don't have to have special attire. You don't have to have attended here so many times. If your conscience is prompting you to do something, I will baptize you. That's enough for me. We don't have to go through long doctrinal statements. We just have to know that God Himself is prompting you. You on Romans 6? When you hear about Jesus, when you hear that you need to be born again to make a right turn, head a new direction, then you begin to devote yourself to the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the apostles. This is the process of putting your soul and your flesh in submission to what your spirit knows is right, to living out God's Word in your actions. Romans 6 discusses that. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? One of the things that we're going to find out in this next verse is that baptism is not just a new beginning. It's a death. And you'll hear this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized... What is that word? Into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Before we go any further, how did Noah and his family get saved from the floodwaters? They got into an ark. Did Noah, was he just an excellent swimmer? No, and if he was, surely Canaan wouldn't be, right? He wasn't an excellent swimmer. He had no special buoyancy that other men didn't have. No real special qualities about Noah that saved him from the flood. What saved Noah from the flood? He got in the ark. Baptism in Jesus' name is not just a new beginning. It is stepping into the function, names in the Bible have to do with function, of Jesus the Messiah. And above all else, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. When we get baptized in His name, what we are doing is responding to His Word, taking an action to identify, stepping into a figurative ark so that we'll be saved. Now, you're going to learn about causing your soul and your flesh to submit to your spirit. But it's really the ark, Jesus, that saves you. The reason you cause your soul and your flesh to submit to your spirit is that's part of the pledge of a good conscience. It's a response. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The Bible tells a story about death coming on all mankind because of man's sin. All mankind died 100% of them, except that this man Jesus came who never had a problem mastering sin. He mastered it 100% of the time. And he submitted to death the same power that was on all the rest of mankind in order that after he was killed, he could be raised from the dead showing he had power over it. That's kind of like building an ark and testing it to see if it floats. Wow, it floats? I think I'm going to get in that ark. Jesus demonstrated for us his power over death, his mastery over sin, his ability to cause his flesh and his soul to submit to his spirit, and then said, since I've done this perfectly, if you will get in me, you'll be credited with my strengths, my accomplishments. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Baptism in its very essence is being lowered into a watery grave, just like Jesus was put in a grave. Just like you are a child being born into a new life, through Jesus' resurrection, you are being brought out into a new life. It's a second start. But it's a start that dies to your old nature and lives only to Jesus. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And it's very hard when we sin and we say it's selfish or it's greed or it's something self-centered. It's also a fear. When you give children sundaes, right, or ice cream, and a child quickly grabs three before everybody's had one, you can say, well, it's just because he wants all three. It's also because he's scared he may not get everything that he would want. He doesn't know how to say that yet, but fear and greed have a relationship together. The best way I know to deal with any of those things is to go ahead and allow your life now to die. Once you've died, what's there left to be scared of? You live then only to Jesus. Anybody who has died has been freed from sin. That's why Christians should not be captive to fear. For we know that since Christ raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery. There's that word. Over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are not going to shoot any of you and say, Oh, you're dead. Now Jesus bring you back. This is a symbolic gesture that is a response to what's going on in your heart. Today, I choose to show the whole world that my old life I am counting as if it were dead. When you get born again, your relatives say the same thing always. It's always been this way. That's still Casey. That still looks a lot like Mandy. That's right. This is the beginning of this process. But like a seed planted in soil, if you give it a chance, it will grow into a whole new human being. I barely resemble the 18-year-old that heard from Jesus and got born again. Now you think I'm talking about because I gained 100 pounds and lost my hair. That's all true. But what else is true is God has revolutionized the way that I think, the way that I act. And now, when the old Eric rears his head, I made the young men walk home the other night, the young men that work with me. I told them to arrange rides. They didn't arrange rides, so I told them to walk home. That in itself, tough love, that's really not a bad thing. But the fact that I was angry about it, that's the old Eric. It still rears its head, and you know what you do with it. You remind it that it died the day you became born again. Your baptism is a day when you can say, I buried the flesh, and now I live a life to Jesus in Him alone. Turn with me to Colossians. We're going to read two more scriptures and close. For Colossians, you'll turn to the right. When you get to the Pauline epistles, you'll go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians uh, 2.9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity in bodily form lives. Let's see. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity in bodily form. I said it wrong again. 
For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. This is a word that simply means that you are learning to put into practice that you are a spirit, you have mind, willing emotions, and you force your flesh to live in obedience to them. Not the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. This is another scripture that speaks of today. The old person dies. The new person lives to God. But my favorite one is in Galatians. Turn back to the left. You're going to get a new garment today. When God looks at you, He is no longer going to see a flawed vessel. He's going to see something else. In Galatians 3, starting in verse 26, You are all sons of God through trust or faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Today, not only does your old sinful nature die in the bottom of a shallow grave, you are raised to walk a new life in Christ, you get a new start. But it gets one better than that. Through the miraculous working of God and through the teaching that you will learn, it is as if you have put on God's very nature because Jesus lived it out perfectly and you're now being clothed with Him. In every instance, you are no longer choosing what is right based on just what you think. You're choosing what is right based on what Jesus has taught you is right. It's as if you were clothed with Him. In Acts 19.5, and I told you I wouldn't read anymore, so I'm not going to read this. Paul the Apostle comes across believers, and they have been baptized. And he says, what name were you baptized into? And they said, John's. He said, John's was about repentance. A guy named John was baptizing people prior to Jesus saying, look, you're dirty and you need to be cleaned spiritually. That's good. But that's not the only reason for baptism. He said, you need to be baptized into the name or function of Jesus. And they did. Why would he do that? I'm telling you today is not enough simply just to want your life to change. This will never be attained through human effort. You have to want your life to change and then you have to be willing to be clothed with Christ through the teachings, through devotion, through submitting yourself to God's work. Otherwise, this is just a ritual no different than the ones done in so many other churches that don't produce results. The real results are not the day of your baptism. It's the next day when you put into practice their principles. It's true. Acts 22.16 says it washes away your sins because figuratively it does. But the whole earth had its sin washed away and only eight people were saved. And what happened? They fouled it up again. We have to learn to master our sins. It comes by living in submission to the Spirit of Jesus and being clothed with Him. So that's really what our church teaches about it. I want to tell you two stories that are not scriptures as we close. They're both very short, so no more yawning. David Livingstone was a missionary in Africa. He pretty well single-handedly evangelized the whole continent during the days of the slave trade. His life was constantly under threat. And a missionary society in England was so impressed with him that they wrote to him and said, we want to send you our missionaries to help you and work. Are there any good roads they could take to get to you? David Livingstone wrote back and said, if the missionaries you wish to send will only come if there are good roads, I think I would prefer not to have them at all. The Jesus that we're talking about, He requires you to do what is difficult. Baptism does not save you. Putting on the strength, the action, the courage of Jesus, that saves you. To illustrate that story, there was another missionary, not in that book, but in another, who went out to baptize in a river. And the river was swift. So he borrowed a sword, not a sword, a spear from the natives. And the first guy that came out to be baptized stood next to him and they shoved the spear in the dirt 
of the water down into the soft mud so that they wouldn't be washed away by the current. And he baptized the native by dunking him and bringing him back up to walk anew in the life of Jesus. The native smiled but didn't leave. He just waited. There was an awkward moment of silence. And he leaned to the pastor and said, You stuck the spear through my foot. He said, Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you do something? He said, When I heard about your Christ and how he was pierced, I knew that this was symbolic of me being joined to him and I assumed that I was pledging to be pierced in any way that life would bring for the gospel of Jesus the Christ I have no sword to pierce you with today but if your desire is not that you would die for the gospel don't waste your time by being baptized but if your desire is that at any cost roads or no roads I want to be identified with Jesus no matter what comes my way well then let your conscience respond by being baptized. Can you all say amen to that? Amen. All right, thanks. We're going to stand to our feet and pray.